Welcome aboard! We will be your guides during this magical journey into the movies. It's the perfect job for us because we love the movies. It's showtime! Ready when you are, CB! Action! Welcome to Monoreal Radio. I'm Sean. And I'm Jackie. And we're happy to come to you this week with a little bonus content, a show that we were very excited to hear about when they teased it, and we were very excited to sit and watch it and binge it on its drop day. Of course, we are talking about prop culture on Disney+. Plus. I love, I, I love the title alone. Very clever. Very clever. It's very clever because obviously it's a play on pop culture. But there is a segment of cinephiles out in the world that are a part of a prop culture because they are, in fact, prop collectors. So I love that for a lot of people that didn't know that this was a thing. Right. That this is now getting shown to the world and if people have an interest in getting a hand on some of these props they have the ability to do it well i think that's the big draw is because you know you're watching these movies and the idea is to be fully immersed in the world that you're in but to collect a prop and be able to hold it in your hand it makes it real so if there's a movie that you really really love and you get to have a piece of it it makes you feel even more connected to the story right and we have taken and, and it's on a very, very limited level compared to most others, of course. But we have taken to starting a prop collection as well. And that sort of started because it had to be about 10 years ago. There was a show on sci-fi, and that show was about a company that chased down movie props, and they authenticated them with screen grabs and everything. But the purpose of that show was basically to show people that these things were getting ready to go to auction and they were pricing everything to be sold. It was a smart concept because it was basically one giant advertisement for their auction. Yeah. Um, And it worked. Exactly. So what Disney is doing differently and I think was a really smart choice is to remove the business end of it. And it's really focusing... With prop culture, it's really focusing more on the craftsmanship of the props and the nostalgia. Right, and then people hunting them down and finding them in private collections or finding them in the Disney archives. The Disney archives, which one day will get a generous donation from Sean and Jackie. (laughs) (laughs) Because we have taken to um, collecting Disney animation cells and... I here's the thing. I didn't know that this was a thing. Like I knew that people who worked on films walked away with props as a keepsake and sometimes people who worked on a studio lot would get whatever was left over and then sometimes props were being sold like on the black market. So I was I was shocked to see that there was an actual marketplace where you could buy and sell these things well that's i mean that's the whole thing it is called a prop because it is property of the studio it started out as a um a theater term and then later got applied to movies because there is a difference and i think it is worth noting that a prop is something that an actor 
or actress actually interacts with. It has to be picked up. It has to be portable. Otherwise, it is a set piece. So what I like that Disney does here, too, is that they have opened it up and they're doing wardrobe and they are, you know, getting into the artwork a little bit more than just a physical prop. That way, you know, from a fan perspective, you get to see everything. Yeah. So we started primitively with Disney animation cells and we probably have eight or ten of them I'd say I it's it's probably close to that number we have a lot that are just not on display right now because we just don't have the space for all of them yeah so we do have quite a few (laughs) um but it went from there to I was able to you know it's it's like any other hobby like you start and you get into it, and then you want to do something bigger. So then you had talked a couple of weeks ago when we had discussed the Pirates of the Caribbean franchise that for your 30th birthday, I had gotten you a prop from Pirates 2 slash 3. It was like a little chest that they had used, and I went and I hunted that down, and then from there we got a piece of the Aztec gold. So, um, But even like... We just love cinema so much. Like, not that it's a screen use prop, but like, I've built a proton pack from nothing because I love Ghostbusters so much. It's my favorite movie. I always wanted a proton pack. So I built one. You know, like, so to see that you could actually go out and find these things and that they're accessible was so exciting to me. And I feel like there are people who love Disney that are stumbling upon this show and it's going to open up doors to a world that they never knew existed. You could walk away with a piece from your favorite film. That's the hope. I I would think. Yeah. And I mean, you look at somebody like Dan Lanigan, the host of the show who is going to join us later on in the podcast. So stick around for that. You know, before he was the host of this show, he started off as a fan and he was collecting props from his favorite movies. And like anything else, it's like it's like a baseball card collection. It's, you, get, you get something, and then you want the next one. You want the next one, and it builds, and it builds, and it builds. So the fact that, as you pointed out, Disney has done this so much differently because there are, uh, you know, American Pickers, and there's... Antique Roadshow. Antique Roadshow. There's Pawn Stars, where all of these shows are based on people bringing in artifacts or goods and they're hoping that somewhere in their house they have that baseball signed by Babe Ruth and that it's worth a million ticket. dollars the golden ticket and that's exactly right and that's not really what's happening here with Disney this is more about really if you think about it especially because Lanigan does host it it's sort of a by the fans for the fans sort of show. And I think that it really does have a certain charm behind it that I think people are really going to attach themselves to. No, and that's a testament to what Dan did for the show as well, because he had his collection. He wanted to do a show like this. And that was also part of his input to not focus on the business end of it. So we're super excited to have him join us and we can't wait to talk movie nerd with him. But first... We are going to talk through the show episode yeah. by episode because similar to how we did the Mandalorian for those who uh, who listened to that episode a while back. Except the difference is now we're just gonna like fangirl and boy over all of these props. <laughs> yes, starting with the first episode of the series where they chase down props from Mary Poppins. Um, I love 
Dan's story in the beginning of this episode that he had seen, I think he said it was a 22-minute clip of the movie that was a drugstore reel that his father had brought home with him and they put on the projector at home because at the time there was no home video release. So this was sort of the way of people getting clips of movies and, and getting teases for movies that they could watch on their own. This was such a smart place to start because you it certainly gives Dan credibility. He's been a Disney fan for a really long time. It gives us a personal story of how he got into this. And it's the perfect parallel because Mary Poppins in particular is why the archives was started. Right. And they tell you that story in this episode that the archives started because things, things just used to be thrown away. Uh, you know, the studios didn't really know what they had because they weren't collectibles at the time. They were things that if they couldn't get reused, they just got junked. I mean, they did it even as recently as Pirates of the Caribbean. They didn't know they were doing the sequels. They got rid of almost everything. Right. And there was a janitor that found the snow globe from the Feed the Birds scene in a trash can. And he, he didn't think anything of it. He was like, oh, this looks kind of cool. And he put it on a shelf and the rest is history. You know, I mean, that's it's it's amazing to me that that prop in particular, because I think I think they said in this episode, actually, because Richard Sherman was there. I think that snow globe used to be in Walt's office. How it even got out of there, I have no idea. Well, because and I was going to mention that as well. I mean, they explain that whole story on this episode, but. We got to do the tour of the studios in Burbank. There was nothing like hearing that from Becky Klein herself. Like the hair on my arm stood up. It was insane. I just had chills because they really they really didn't know what they had. And it's like to us, it's like, how could you throw something like that away right. and not realize how important it is? But the way that it got removed from Walt's office was when they were doing their renovations, Somebody else took over that corner office. So all of Walt's stuff was removed and they still had it. But and then I believe once the archive started, they put it back exactly the way it was for right. the tours. But I'm guessing somewhere things got lost in the shuffle. Yeah. But that's you know, that that's how the whole thing got started there. And you almost cringe to think how many things have been lost to time. I do cringe. And like even um, they, they mentioned in this episode, for example, the parrot, um, her umbrella. They have no idea where it is. They found the molds and they show you that in the episode, but they don't know what happened to the umbrella. And that could it be sitting in somebody's basement somewhere and they don't know that it's there? Of course. Could it be sitting somewhere in a collector's home and they're protecting it and they're, it's a family heirloom? That's possible, too. I hope Julie Andrews has it. It would be nice to think that because there's also the chance that it's sitting in a that it's sitting in a dump yard in Burbank somewhere. I mean, it could be it could just about be anywhere at this point. Um, but this was a really sort of magical way of starting the series off because it was, I mean, long considered Walt Disney's greatest achievement. Um, other than maybe Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs, I for one think that this is the best film he ever made in his it's life. It's the capstone, absolutely. Um, and it has transcended generations. And you do really see that in this episode, specifically where we do see Richard Sherman and Jason Schwartzman, who played Richard Sherman in Saving Mr. Banks. 
I love that they did that because it's not just somebody associated with Mary Poppins. And then the obvious thing would be to do get somebody from Mary Poppins Returns because that's more recent. But I love that they also pulled in Saving Mr. Banks because that is such an important story. I mean, we've talked about that film on the show before we've reviewed it. And and we just love the story and how hard Disney had to work. Well, I don't love that he had to work hard, but like it's just very interesting how hard it was to get the rights to Mary Poppins. Yeah. And every time I see any sort of footage of the studio lot and you, you do see it here specifically in Walt's office with Dan and Jason and Richard, I want to go back so bad, so bad. Like, if we weren't in the current situation that we were in right now, I'm fairly certain that we would have booked airfare. Because the one thing that I was so happy about with this show was it was, I don't think it was meant to be bingeable on release day the way that Netflix does it, because Disney Plus has not been doing that. They've been releasing everything episodically, you know, in order. Like, every Friday, here comes another episode. Because we were able to binge, you get so much Disney lot in this show that I was <laughs> sitting there looking at airfare wondering when can we book and when can we go back. No, it's true. That was a nice surprise because I was up first thing in the morning. I was like, prop culture releases today. Let's go watch it. And I thought we were going to get one episode. And then it's the whole thing. And we were like, all right, well, quarantine works in our favor for today. Yeah, we had no plans anyway. Um, so great moment between the three of them. And then you hear the story of Mary's pocketbook you know the uh, the carpet carpet bag. bag and it's a story that some of us had heard before and for those who hadn't heard the story it really is amazing that as a part of a contest people could enter to win prizes you know it was a cross promotion with the film and one of the prizes was you could win that bag filled with ten thousand dollars cash the person got the bag and said I don't want the bag. I just want the money. And they gave the bag back and it ended up sitting in an attic. Which is funny because that bag is probably valued to way more than 10 grand uh, yeah. today. All we know is that it went up to auction and it sold. And in this episode, I think they said that Dan helped in getting the prop back into the hands of Disney. But I, I, I give Dan a lot of credit for that because as somebody who is a collector, I mean selfishly you would love to have that as a part of your collection it would be basically the centerpiece of any collection but as much as you want it and as much as you appreciate the hobbyists out there mm -hmm. it meant more to him to get it back in the hands of disney because at the end of the day that's where a lot of this really does belong and that's when um, years from now, when Jackie and I have no one to leave our things to, Disney is going to get all of their cells back. It's the right thing to do. They were never supposed to really leave Disney's hands. But with that said, I'm not willing to give them up just yet, but they will make their way back. Yes. Someday they will make their way back. Dee Dee Wood is my spirit animal. <laughs> one of the choreographers who worked on the film... And she is just a riot in this episode. That's also what really sets the show apart, too, is that they did get the cast and the crew in. And one of the things that strikes me is how nostalgic they get, particularly 
Dee Dee would as soon as she sees. Now she's still. They they went to her because she still has the penguins that yeah, uh, the they used for reference when you know the infamous penguins when Dick Van Dyke is dancing. Uh, they needed a reference for the height for the sight line, so she hung on to them because at the time they were tools for her to work with. So like who would think, you know, what this movie was going to become? And I think she said that she would work with them even after the film was over. Right. She would use them just as a placeholder. So that was all she was able to take away from the film. And Dan Lanigan brings her one of the chimney sweep brushes. Yeah. And her reaction is just priceless. I mean, she's singing the song and I can't say that I would have done it any differently. She plucked one of the bristles out. Yeah, because she said that she wishes that she would have kept them, um, and she didn't. And she said, I don't know why I didn't think to do it, but I just didn't. And he showed it to her, and it was it was in rough shape because it's old. But, yeah, she pulled the bristle off, and she was kind of like, ha-ha, it's too late now. I mean, that, she didn't say that. You knew she was going to do it, though. She didn't say that, but that was basically the look that she gave. But she's an absolute riot here. The costumes that exist, because you do see a number of people who either worked on the film or were in the film without naming every single one, of course, um, where they show the costumes from this film. They're absolutely outstanding. The detail in them is second to none. That's what this show does so well too, is Dan Lanigan goes out to see Tony Walton, who was the costume designer on Mary Poppins. And at the time was, married to julie andrews right um it was amazing to see him look back with such a fondness um but this is where the show gets really interesting too because they do hone in so much on the craftsmanship and tony was explaining how when he designed the coat you know it's a dark coat but when when you flip it open on the inside there's like a bright splash of color and Julie Andrews used that to incorporate it into the character and she thought it was like a little naughty i think they said yeah. so to learn those little bits of history and how it played into the overall film that's one of the things that i love so much about this show and in this case too they did have him authenticate his work because a lot of the sketches and the drawings and the concept art, they didn't know who actually did it. And you can kind of tell stylistically, you know, what work is coming from which artist, but yeah. they wanted to make sure that it was his. So, you know, 60 years later or whatever it is, he signs it, which I thought was was a really cool touch. Right. And then you have Karen Dotras, who makes an appearance here. She was Jane Banks in Mary Poppins, and they go to Walt's carousel. It's the carousel that he used to take the kids to where he first conceptualized Disneyland, and they have the bench dedicated to him that he used to sit in. And I I think, you know, he tells the story. He'd sit there and eat peanuts and watch his kids and think about a place where families could go and have fun for the day and it'd be clean and safe. And, you know, from there, we all know how he changed history. So they go to that bench and they show Karen Dotras one of her overcoats that she wore as a child and it brings tears to her eyes and then she hands Dan a hat box and it has her hat in it that she wore on set. And again, they really zoom in on this jacket and 
The jacket specifically, the detail is unbelievable. It really is. And that's something I sometimes find surprising because when you're talking about the art design and the costumes and the set, the concern is really the cinematography and how it comes together overall and how it's going to look on film. And, you know, they do a million camera tests before they actually start shooting and, you know, they'll get the costume design, they'll put the they'll put the actor in it and they'll photograph it to see how it's going to show. So you would think that that's more important in the overall look than having this really detailed costume because you're only going to see it in the close-ups. But that doesn't take away from it truly being an art form and how much thought is put into not just the color, but the material and the fabric. And even that sometimes does play a bigger part in the overall film. Well, I think that that's also the difference between current Hollywood and that golden age classic Hollywood. Because now... A lot of, you know, even in superhero movies, these guys have their costumes on and then they're touched up with CGI. They're touched up in post. Whereas if you look at some of the original superhero films from, you know, the 50s and 60s, you know, even looking back at the old uh, Superman, the original television show, and then into those films and Batman, et cetera, and so forth, they were those costumes were not getting touched up in post. They just were what they were. They had to be. They had. They had to. It, durability was really the the biggest concern. Right. Can they move in it, and can it withstand, you know, the stunt work and everything else that goes into it? But, you know, you're right. There's such a craft to it that I think at times goes underappreciated and often, too often, really forgotten about. So it was great to see that come to life here, and and to. I think that they picked the perfect film to start the series off with. I had a lump in my throat this entire episode. Really through the whole series, I I shed a few tears from nostalgia, but this was, yeah, this was such a great kickoff. Then they lead into a movie that, while it was a box office bomb at the time of its release, has gone on to be incredibly significant both culturally and cinematically because without Tron we don't have the movies that we have today um I know people say well that might be a bit of a reach because Star Wars was so influential and and etc and so forth and you're absolutely right but remember early CGI early computer animation it came from Tron and I love the fact that they went right from Mary Poppins to Tron because Mary Poppins, for so many reasons, was significant for its technical achievements in putting Mary and Bert and Michael and Jane in, you know, into in, the chalk in, drawing, into the chalk drawing. And they incorporated the live action and the animation. I mean, look no further than we talked about before the amazing um, Frank Thomas animation with those penguins and how they interact with Dick Van Dyke. So you go from that to Tron. Tron did change the world of cinema. It's just like so many other things, it was so ahead of its time at the time of its release that I think people are only really starting in the last 20 years to appreciate Tron 
for what it is. No, and I think this was a really smart pick to incorporate into the series overall because this is an example of real crafts craftsmanship. I mean, they had none of this. They had to fabricate everything because you're talking about a completely computer animated world. So you had to make all of it. There's no store that you can just go and say, all right, I need this. It was, it was all made up. Um, and I think it was cool too, because they start with the Flynn's arcade sign, yeah. uh, which Disney had, there was no tracking it down, but it didn't work. So then it it poses an interesting question. Do you fix it or do you replicate it? Right. And in this case, they chose to restore it, um, which I think was the right thing to do um, because you're not totally rebuilding the sign. You really are just replacing the neon lights that have burned out. I think that's important because... It's it's not as if they tore the thing down and completely rebuilt it from the you know for lack of a better term from the studs up if we're using a, a builder's term, and they didn't just throw it in the garbage and make another one because if you're not going to restore it, take care of it, make it screen ready, then really it's just a very big paperweight, and I think that. You Okay, you can argue that there's a line that you tow between it being brand new and being the original. In this case, because all you've done is replace the, the fluorescent lighting, but it's still the original structure, I think it was the right thing to do. Right. You didn't change the design at all, and it's not like they needed it. You know, they didn't need it for a sequel or a reboot or whatever. You don't need it to work exactly the way it did. So you want to keep what was there. But it's interesting that they chose to do it for that. I mean, yes, you are just fixing a couple of lights. And in the previous episode, we didn't mention the carousel horse. They had Dick Van Dyke's and they had Mary's and um, they got Erin Andrews to come in and she asked if they were going to do any work to touch it up and restore it. But in that case, because these props were so iconic, it's just kind of like let them be what they are. Yeah. I think if they wanted to do something like that for Mary Poppins Returns, they just would have made new ones for that film. Yeah, I agree. I also think that there's a difference between fixing fluorescent lights and painting over the existing prop. Right, because that's original artwork. Right. That's that's the line that you tow where in one case it's too much and in the other case it's just enough. But, yeah, the costumes, I mean, that's really, the costumes specifically are, I think, the focal point of this episode because they seem so primitive because they're really just, I mean, jumpsuit? I mean, it's not even really a, it's just, it's just like a white outfit that they made by hand with tape electrical tape masking tape the helmets are hockey helmets with tape i love that they resorted to like low budget independent film to get these to get the look of these costumes it's brilliant it that's not to say that it looks cheap but it's like that's one of those things that you you would hear from an indie film set where it's like you are being very budget conscious and they had to just use what they had and do the best they could with it yeah 
And this had never been done before. Now, this was the first time, I, I can't stress this enough, this was the first time anything like this was ever being done. Even to get the actors to understand the space that they were working in seemed really challenging. Right. But at the same time, because they were working in that fake world, they really could do whatever they wanted. They talk about how they couldn't get the light cycles to turn the way that they wanted to. So they said, well, it's a video game and we've created this world. Just It'll be a right angle. It's really funny because there's such a fine line that you're walking between being really constricted and really free. Yeah, especially in this case. Um, but I love the stories that these these set designers and these costume designers tell of, yeah, I'd go home at night and I'd do a helmet sitting at my dining room table, put it together with tape, and, and that they were touching them up with Sharpies on set. <laughs> Steven Lisberger tells this, he directed the film, tells this great story of, you know, it's, it really was a very big budget film at the time because it was so technically advanced. And the people open the doors to the soundstage and Jeff Bridges is just throwing a Frisbee around. But that's a part of the movie and it's just a white Frisbee with tape on it. But it looks amazing. It does. Wait, I mean, when you when you reduce it to that, it doesn't sound like a lot, but that sequence in the film, yeah, it looks absolutely amazing. Yeah. And the matte paintings are fantastic. There's that one of the office space that Jeff Bridges works in, and it just goes on and on and on and on. And, I mean, really, they just shot three or four cubicles, and then they put this matte painting around it, but it's... It blends so seamlessly. The detail is absolutely insane. I love the heavy dose of Disney history that we get here, too, because that was painted by Harrison Ellenshaw. Um, and they go to his house and immediately I saw the picture of Walt with the little boy on the train. And that was the first train ride that he did when he had it installed on his property. Right. So I'm just thinking it's like a neighborhood kid or like, you know, one of one of his daughter's friends or whatever. Turns out he's also the son of Peter Ellen Shaw, who did all of the matte paintings for Mary Poppins and 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. Basically, you know his work from all of those opening title sequences. Let's talk about Steven Lisberger and his yurt. <laughs> Let's. Because... Even Dan Lanigan seemed to be surprised and said, I never thought I would end up in a yurt in his backyard to find Tron memorabilia. But the thing is, that's basically all it was. Like, I think he had a script and he had a production jacket, but he had like the cake plate that you'd get at the grocery store for your nine-year-old's birthday party and a, a couple of Rolling Stone magazines. I think he had some Newsweeks. But it was kind of like seeing yogurt in Spaceballs. Yogurt in the yurt. Spaceballs <laughs> the lunchbox. Spaceballs the coloring book. I'm surprised that he didn't pull out a lot more in terms of prop. Because, in fact, it was Dan Lanigan that pulled out the identity disc that he had gotten from the Disney archives. I would have thought that Steven Lisberger had a lot more than just kind of your run-of-the-mill merchandise. Right, because there is so much that had to be fabricated. Even the, the glove, that was going up for auction 
from a, a the scoop, yeah, yeah, from a, a competitor company, right. I think the prop store was I doing think it. Was it. A I prop mean, store, I'd yeah. be shocked honestly if Disney didn't just buy it back at that point, or have somebody sitting in the auction with a paddle trying yeah. to get the thing back. But um, I mean, it just goes to show too how how props were thought of even even then in the eighties. I mean, collecting certainly wasn't as big as it is now, but this film was a box office flop. And thankfully, it has become quite the cult classic. But I guess that's the thing. Like, if you're a director earlier on in your career and you feel like the film wasn't successful, maybe you didn't want to keep a lot of it because you might be looking at it as as like a mark on your record. You don't know. So that was kind of nice to see, too, how Steven Lisberger has the full circle moment with this film and and to see what it has become. Right, because the movie, I said it before, it is ahead of its time. I think because we live in such a digital age now, you can sit there and watch Tron. A child can watch Tron today and understand what's going on because we are the movie has now caught up with us. In the early 80s, when the digital age wasn't really a thing yet, I mean, you you hardly had the home computer other than people building their own as a hobby. I don't think anybody could really follow what this movie was about. I mean, yes, you had people that were inclined technologically that could follow it, but those were few and far between. Right, and it's not like Star Wars. Right. Where okay, you have the lightsabers and they look very advanced and, you know, the sets are very advanced, but it's it's not hard to follow at all. Yeah, it's it's base, you, It's the same thing as watching a Western. It's just that you're watching it in space. Exactly. So it's a space opera. In this case, you're talking about being sucked into a video game for all intents and purposes and having an identity disc and, and, and a, an avatar and a profile. It's part of the story. Right. So you need to understand it. And without having any frame of reference leading up to that, I can exactly. see where people would not have been able to follow it. But now, it's it's kind of commonplace. Right. So, if you haven't seen Tron, you know, I've only seen it maybe two or three times. I saw it in high school once, and I was completely confused by it. But I was interested, though. It held my interest. And then I've watched it again a couple of more times over the last few years. And now that I've seen it a few more times, and now that you kind of anticipate what's going to happen, and especially now that we are in that digital age, and we do have social media, and everything's uploaded to the cloud, and you have avatars and profiles for everything that you do, now the movie's a lot easier to follow along with. I'm looking forward to the day where we sit down and actually watch and review this film. And if you haven't gone and seen it yet, I would suggest that you go ahead and watch it. It is up on Disney+. Plus. And that goes even one step further. I bet you really can't wait to ride it. Oh, man. Yeah, when they finally get the attraction open at uh, Walt Disney World, I'm excited for that, too. We talked before about how, where do you tell the line between restoring something and something completely being remade? But there are some instances where... A prop has to be restored every couple of years. 
we learn that in the next episode of Prop Culture, where they chase down props from Tim Burton's Nightmare Before Christmas. Drool. Um, I did not know how long they had developed the character of Jack. That, I think, other than the amount of restoring that has to take place with these props, for me, that was my biggest takeaway. Yeah, what was really funny, and I'm kind of surprised that they included this, is that Tim Burton was working on Fox and the Hounds, and I believe it was Rick Heinrich who said he saw him sketching something else. So you've basically admitted (laughs) that he was not working on what he was supposed to. And, you know, you've made your film, your feelings on Tim Burton quite clear on the show. But, you know, this was always what was in his head. And he got it on paper and they were able to just take it and run with it. Yeah. So Jack had been in development for a long time and hadn't really changed at all. And then the script gets banged out in two weeks with four notes from Tim Burton, greenlit, we're going, we have a script, let's roll. That was shocking. Especially yeah. because the notes are like, make it more skeletony. It's not even like drastic changes to the story or anything that he really wants changed. It's like, yeah, just get inside my head a little bit more. That's completely remarkable. Yeah, the draft of the script was written by Carolyn Thompson, who was dating Danny Elfman at the time. And he started working on the music before the script was done. So he also had a really big hand in the Jack character as well. Not not just, you know, that he's the singing voice, but he actually contributed to the story arc. Right. And funny enough, he hated the script when she handed it to him to read because he said, this isn't anything that I... that I was thinking when I wrote these songs. And she basically said, too bad, I'm handing it in. It's done, yeah, that, this is what we're rolling with. And what's amazing about that is, I don't know if he had to change a lot of the music that he wrote, or if they just got lucky, but it all works harmoniously. It really does. It was shocking to find out how how little had changed from concept to final product just in the design of the character and that there was only really one draft of the script it's it's unbelievable that's unheard of really yeah what amazes me too and i never really knew this it's branded as tim burton's nightmare before christmas it's all over the place right didn't write it didn't direct it it's basically just his concept yeah That's not to say that he didn't work hard on it because, I mean, what they did was really revolutionary. And, you know, they get into that when they uh, show the set piece of um, Spiral Hill and the way that Jack walked down there. Um, The difference between this really and other stop motion animation films is that they used camera techniques that were being used in live action. So to have to like reposition every single character you know, turn the camera on, get the shot, move the character one, you know, slightly over, do it all over again. But you're also incorporating a camera move in there. That's that's a real technological achievement. Yeah. And if they did that nowadays, they would just do it with CGI. Exactly. Um, yeah, I, I didn't realize other than coming up with character names and concept art, how little of role he sort of played in actually writing the story because he didn't. 
Danny Elfman wrote the songs. But you're right, it was just what was in his head for so long. But the the big takeaway here is, as I mentioned before, how often these puppets need to be restored. Every two years, they decompose. I didn't know this about these characters. I thought that they just could remain in their state as long as they were kept in, you know, in a, in a glass case and it, they weren't oxidizing. Not the case at all. They actually do melt. Yeah, and that's that's not to say that they're not being taken care of. It just they start melting for for the one that Danny Elfman had in particular, the Sandy Claws. That's really problematic because you've got the red dripping on to to the white of the skeleton. Right. And the beard. And he said that there was one day that he came out and there was just a pool of red underneath Jack and it was coming off of his hat. That's also surprising because Jack is just like a, you know, like a wiry character for the for the more rounded characters. They use the armatures and um you know, I, it's it's easy to see where there's wear and tear on all the joints where you're moving them. Yeah. But that was really a surprise that it happens to, to Jack as well. And when Dan talks to, well, when Dan Lanigan talks to Danny Elfman, I shouldn't say, when Dan talks to Dan, um, <laughs> Danny Elfman, you can tell that the character of Jack Skellington, he carries him with him today. And that character meant so much to him because he talked about when Tim Burton approached him and they had started conceptualizing some of the music for this and he was helping develop Jack as a character, you know, for all intents and purposes, he was trying to leave Oingo Boingo. And he said, I I had achieved great success but it wasn't making me happy and I felt lost and I was confused and now I've got to tell these people that work with me that I'm going to leave the band and and there's a lot of pressure on that it makes so much sense now watching Nightmare Before Christmas and seeing how Jack is almost a direct reflection of Danny Elfman I had no idea he inserted himself into the character so much because I was fortunate enough to see Danny Elfman. He did like a, a residency at Lincoln Center and it was all of his music, not just Nightmare. I mean, that was like the big, the couple of songs were the big encores at the end. Um, but I mean, it was so cool. He did everything you'd ever want to see. He did Beetlejuice. He did Pee Wee. He did, I mean, it was everything. It was so cool. But at the end, he puts the Santa hat on and he's singing all of his nightmare stuff. He's bouncing back and forth between Jack and Oogie Boogie. And it was amazing to watch him. And you could tell he just embraces it so much. But I had no idea it was because he really put so much of his heart and soul into these characters. Yeah. And I think that's why this movie has become the timeless classic that it has. I think this is why this movie transcends generations. Technically, it's a Marvel, but because he inserted himself specifically into the title character, and he gave him so much life, and he gave him so much emotion, this is a story that I think everybody can embrace. And because the because the filmmaking technique is so amazing and because the puppets are so detailed and because the music is so good this is why this film will live on forever 
Absolutely. This film was a great pick to do an episode on because, you know, we talked about it before. Do you preserve it or do you restore it? And this is one of those things that's just so iconic. You have to keep it alive. You have to restore them or they disappear forever. But let's keep rolling down the list here. Well, before we get to Pirates of the Caribbean, let's look back on the first three films that they talk about here. All technical marvels, all technically significant. Mary Poppins, Tron, Nightmare. So they were clearly going for something early on here to catch you and hook you. And I think to lead into Pirates of the Caribbean, which we've just spent the last few weeks talking about, makes a lot of sense because this is one of your biggest franchises. It's one of your most successful IPs. And it's something that is uniquely Disney. What's remarkable, too, is considering that it's a period piece, how recognizable and how iconic some of these props are. Like the compass. It's obviously made to look like it's of the era, but like, you know that's Jack's compass. Yeah, well, that's it. They've become iconic the same way the identity disc in Tron has become iconic. I love that a lot of those sets in St. Vincent still exist or or did for quite some time and when Dan when Dan you know he he comes in on this boat and you see um, I think they call it old man's trousers is that rock formation, but that's where they had the pirates, pirates ye be warned on the uh, on the nooses. I always thought that was something that Disney had just like fabricated with foam. Sure. Yeah. No, I thought that that was something that they made. Can we just also talk about what a tough job Dan Lanigan has that he gets to handle all of these props and then he gets to go to the Caribbean on a boat? Yeah. Travel the world. Poor guy. Poor you. We're going to have to ask him about that when he comes on in a little while. I think my favorite story here, or my favorite little anecdote, is that there is a bar owner, a restaurant owner, that has the mast. It's the mast that Jack Sparrow makes his incredible entrance on. And she has it in her place of business set in concrete because there was a rumor that someone was going to come and steal it. Because Disney left those pirate skeletons with the pirates ye be warned, and someone actually climbed up on those rocks and cut them down and stole them. They pirated the pirate props. But yeah, it it was shocking to learn how, me- how many props and set pieces were left there. I mean, I know that this film, this entire franchise put a lot of people to work, and... They did have to build things just so that they could get their sets there and and get all of the materials that they needed onto the island because they were filming in these really remote places. That's what it was supposed to look remote. You left an imprint just to get the production there. But I'm surprised that some of those more iconic pieces were left, like the mast. And I mean, I would be doing the same thing if I had that. Of course, people are going to try and steal it. Yeah. I just want to go see it. So as soon as we can travel again, guess what we're doing? We're going to St. Vincent. 
900 costumes made in the film, uh, or made for the film, I should say. They're absolutely stunning. They're saltwater eroded. They look great. I'm not going to spend a ton of time on this because we have literally dedicated nearly a month to discussing all of this, so I don't want to rehash all of it. Um, but Jack's bandana, that iconic bandana, I think she said made in Turkey? I think is where it came from. That was the sash. Oh, the sash. But the the bandana, though, that's what it is, was 50 cents. It's a 50 cent bandana. Well, I mean, how much, if it went to auction today? Oh, my now, God. Of course, it would go, <clears throat> excuse me, it would go as a part of a whole costume. But you would, Im- I'd have to imagine that a Jack Sparrow screen used costume with that 50 cent bandana Low end has to sell for twenty five grand. I if I if I'm taking a stab at it, I'm thinking it's got to sell for at least twenty five thousand. I would think higher. I mean that that character is iconic, but part of what makes him iconic is that whole outfit. Penny Rose did the costumes for Pirates, um, and what I I loved here is that part of the reason they went to St. Vincent's is not just because of the props that were left there. She loved the experience of filming so much. She bought a house there. Which I'm sure you could after working on three pirate movies. Yeah. But um yeah, I I loved hearing too how much Johnny contributed to the wardrobe. Well, he loves the character so much, and he's fully immersed himself in that character. And yes, he had a lot to say with the look, but it just makes so much sense for Johnny Depp because if he's that invested in the character, I don't think he looks at himself in the mirror in that outfit and says oh that's me as jack sparrow i think he just looks at it as that's me and he wanted jack sparrow to look a certain way i mean we we said it a few weeks ago when we talked about it the franchise is the franchise because of jack sparrow absolutely um they had uh tony swatton um who was the designer of the swords for the films. And and he has made swords for films for a long time. He's held in high regard as one of the best. He has so much they rented his stuff just to do the uh to do the blacksmith scene. Well, I think he said he had like 200 hammers. He said I there's never enough. I just keep collecting hammers. And yeah, he just lent them out. He was like, well, what else am I doing with them? You want to use them for a set? Go use them for a set. Um, but he is less than a mile from the Disney studio in Burbank. He couldn't get any more convenient, but his work is amazing. And he had a sword from the mid-1700s, a sword, a cutlass or a sword that was older than the United States of America. But it's it hasn't fallen apart. It's still in good shape because A, it's been taken care of, but B, the craftsmanship is unbelievable. And that's sort of the craftsmanship that he puts into his props because it doesn't matter that it's going to be used in a movie. It has to look real and it has to withstand you know, production every day. And then he pulls out the Jack sparrow sword and you look at them side by side and it's amazing how much influence he pulled from that historical artifact he even 
you know, just down to the last detail, he even used that animal horn to incorporate into the handle. It's like you would think that that's something the props department is going to fabricate just to look correct, but they actually made it. I think this was probably the most informative episode as far as the craftsmanship goes. And I think that's also by nature of it being a period piece. But, you know, between the the swords and even the way that they weathered those costumes, this was really a look into what goes into fabricating these pieces because now we are seeing things that we're familiar with. It's not like Tron where you just have a script as a blueprint and you have to figure out what it looks like. These are all things that we know that live in the real world and now you have to take them and make them look right. You're you're almost reverse engineering them. Right. And that's just important, just as important as creating something that we've never seen before and making it look like something we should be familiar with to now you're going to be scrutinized that you did do it period correct and where i really have an appreciation for this episode in particular you talked about um i think it was a water buffalo horn i think so that they used on the handle for the sword at the time of this recording pirates of the caribbean curse of the black uh, black pearl is 17 years old so we sit here now in 2020, at the time of this recording. And I would imagine that if that film gets made today and they use anybody but Tony Swatton, that is a 3D-printed plastic handle. Exactly. And that's how different the industry has changed. That's how, that's how different it is now as opposed to only 17 years ago. So when you look back on something 60 years ago from Mary Poppins... Or, or even 40 years ago, and you look at something from Tron, that's where you really appreciate that these props exist and that somebody like Dan Lanigan is a collector and he does take care of them and he does restore them. I mean, the, the collectors all over the world, this is why they do it. So now we're at the halfway point of the series. It's four episodes in, and what I love that they've done is, you know, you talked about how the first three films were technological achievements they've also done such a great job of balancing when these films were made you know you're picking from the 60s then from the 80s then from the 2000s so now we're going back to honey i shrunk the kids one of my all-time favorites me too like i don't even care that it's getting a reboot i mean you know we we've said it's ridiculous come up with a new idea but for this one i'm all in you, no, I'm not. Um, but they're going to do it anyway, so it doesn't matter what I say. Josh Gad, he'll, it'll be fine. Yep, don't need to see it. Um, but I'm going to. They got Rick Moranis back for crying out loud. It's going to be fine. Okay. I trust the I trust the Gad. Okay. I saw the Ray on the backlot tour at, at Disney's MGM Studios. Uh, didn't we all? Well, Dan Lanigan saw it. He That's what got out. him started collecting, actually, was he would used to he would go to MGM and he thought it was fascinating to see these uh, these props up close. I feel bad for kids of a certain generation and certainly anybody moving forward. I mean, listen, Galaxy's Edge is the most amazing achievement that up to this point in time, Walt Disney Imagineering has ever done. There's no doubt about it. I love Galaxy's Edge. Toy Story Land, eh, it's okay. Um, I feel bad for the generation of kids who are never going to get to take that backlot tour. Honestly, no disrespect 
to Galaxy's Edge because it is amazing, I would rather be driving past the Golden Girls house, quite honestly, for reasons like this. Because that shrink machine, when I went, was the most identifiable. Besides the Muppet Cab, it was the most identifiable piece on that tour. Yeah, because at the time when I saw it for the first time, Honey, I Shrunk the Kids was still a viable franchise. The original film wasn't that old. We were only two years removed. I don't even think it was, maybe, was it even that long? Maybe two years removed from Honey, I Blew Up the Kid. Um, So to see something that meant so much to you, and you are a child at the time, but to see something that meant so much to you, and it's almost within... It's 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 within arm's length. Right, because they were just behind they had everything like piled up behind those like a cage. It was supposed to yeah. look like a crate, but I mean, you could really get up close and it was it was the cue for the ride. So you really got to spend some time looking at all of the details. Right. And that shrink machine saw a number of updates over the course of the years leading up to um, Honey, We Shrunk Ourselves, which was a straight-to-VHS sequel. And I love that. And I I had that movie on VHS as a kid. I watched it a lot. It was fun. I haven't seen it in a long time. I want to go back and revisit it soon to see if it's still fun or if it's only fun because I remember seeing it when I was 10 years old. Um, but I love that they basically say, yeah, we updated it over the course of the uh, series, but that's not really what people want to see. They want to see the original shrink machine. I think it's smart that they acknowledge it because it also, the way that they built on it, it does look more advanced. So, yeah, if you're if you're talking about the shrink machine, this is the one we knew. This is what you grew up on. This is probably the most iconic piece of the franchise. You have to go back to the original. And I think this is one of those instances where it's like, okay, restoration, fine. Yeah. Stripped down. And I, I get why they did it, you know? They had the thing built. It clearly was not easy to make. So you're going to update it as you do these sequels rather than build another one. Right. So I get it. But I like that they acknowledge they want to go back to the initial design. And I think, you know, that's important because unlike Tron... It is similar in the sense that they had to build something that we've never seen before and it has to look right in the world that it's in. This also has to look like it has to work. Yeah, and it has to look like something that is crudely built. You And you have to believe it. Right, which is, uh, I, people that follow the show know I will find ways to weave my favorites in there. It's what <laughs> makes a proton pack so aesthetically pleasing because... It's something that Egon Spengler built. It looks like something that they built in the firehouse, but you believe that that pack works. You believe that the trap works. You believe that the PKE meter works. And that movie now is almost 40 years old, which is hard for me to accept because um, that means that I am closing in on 40 years old. Um, but it still looks good to this day. The Shrink Machine looks crudely made in an attic by Wayne Zielinski. It looks like it works. It is aesthetically pleasing. That is why it stands today as being a timeless prop. So you're right. 
it had to look functional, and it most certainly did. It's not to say it didn't look functional as the series went on, but that's not that's not our shrink machine. This is our shrink machine. So I love the fact, in this case, that they did a restoration, not a total rebuild, but a restoration to get it back to its original form. I think that the prop house that they go into looks like a hardware store, <laughs> which is kind of fun, like literally with aisle numbers. Um, but me seeing that, I think that's a lot of fun. Like I wish I could go in there and spend an, spend an entire day just looking around and seeing if I can pull things that are familiar to me. See, I think that's what people think of when they think prop house, because that's, that's where Pirates was a challenge because you can go to a place like that and you can order in bulk, but how many period accurate pieces can you find? And that's what the challenge was is that you can't find them, so you have to make them. Here, if you're doing something like, okay, now I hate to say this, but now if you're doing a film set in the 90s like Captain Marvel when when she crash lands into the into the blockbuster. Yeah. You could go to a prop house and find things like that. Even though they are dated items, we're not so far removed where you could buy in bulk in that regard. Sure. But I love that they have the baseball. Yeah, the baseball that comes through the window and sets the machine off and it's what causes the shrink machine to work. I love the story that they took a wood burning kit and they burned the baseball so that you had the uh, the burn mark from the laser. And what I love even more so is that the cast signed the baseball. Yeah, that was pretty cool. Great keepsake. Um, and Speaking of the cast, I love that we got the reunion. That we got the reunion with the kids. Um, and, and what is sort of a bittersweet moment? Because it's great to see them back, but you see the remains of Auntie, which is really just a, a like a skeletal head. That's basically all that's left of that animatronic. Right. And as if it doesn't crush your soul enough when you lose Auntie in the film, now you're seeing the the skeletal remains and you don't even have Auntie in the parks anymore. I mean, that's what I loved about the Honey, I Shrunk the Kids playground. That was my yeah. favorite part. I mean, the, the big cookie, sure. We all wanted to go and, and pretend we were eating it. But the other thing, what did you want to do? You wanted to climb climb up on Auntie. We as as recently as our first trip to Disney together, I made you get up on that thing and take a picture. Yeah, because we knew that its time was coming to an end. You didn't know exactly when, but eventually the Honey I Shrunk the Kids playground was taken away to make room for uh, new attractions and new things at Disney's MGM Studios. Because as we've said on this show a hundred times, and we'll forever say will always be the MGM Studios. I don't know what Hollywood Studios is. Mm -hmm. But, um, yeah, you just wish that there was more of that animatronic left. But at least they have that, and I would assume now that that is going to somehow enter the hands of Disney so that they can preserve it and they can keep it and they can make sure that it does not deteriorate or break apart any further. You would hope so, because... The cast was not only nostalgic, but you could tell they were they were kind of upset that it wasn't in its original form. That was a cool segment. I'm glad we got that little cast reunion with the kids. And I thought that was all we were going to get. Oh, boy. I was not at all prepared for Rick Moranis because he 
doesn't do stuff like this anymore. No, he retired at a young age um, to be a stay-at-home father. He lost his wife very young, and he gave up a lucrative career at the height of his career. I mean, it's not common that you see somebody at the height of their popularity walk away. That's the thing. It's not just a lucrative career, but he's such a character actor. I I can only imagine what else we would have gotten from him. But he is slowly dipping his toes back in the water. He came out for this interview. We know that Josh Gad was able to get him for the Honey, I Shrunk the Kids reboot. I'm sure it's going to be a couple of quick cameos. I don't think he's going to be like a mainstay. But the fact that he's doing it is enough for me. It was great to see him back on screen. Um, And what stood out to me about him in particular was Dan Lanigan asks him about props and and what he has from the film. And he said, really, the only thing I kept from the films were the glasses because they were all prescription glasses. So I kept them. Smart. Um, And he said, I I had some 8 by 10 photos and some things, but over the course of the years, I would send them to fans who wrote me letters, and I just don't have any of it anymore. Like He just seems like he's so content having his memories and having left his footprint on cinema that he doesn't care about having his walls lined with memorabilia. He doesn't care about keeping all of the props. Like he seems like he's a minimalist. And I don't mean that offensively. I just mean like he's happy. He's happy having had the experiences more than the physical takeaways. That's amazing. It's so impressive. Because for me, I just want a piece of my favorite movie. Yeah. I didn't even work on it. I just want some of it. I hope that we do see more of him now. Um, I'm hoping that this is a bridge for him to slowly make his way back into Hollywood. I I hope that it's a way of of us as fans having a, a means of communicating with him, of seeing him. He's aged great. I mean... I mean, if if you look at him, he doesn't look like he aged hardly at all, um, other than the fact that he has the beard now. But I guess when you don't have the stress of having to deal with Hollywood, <laughs> then you can age very gracefully, and he certainly has. It's true. I hope he gets on social media and he can see for himself how much people missed him and how happy they are to have him back. Yeah, please please come back for Ghostbusters 3. Um, (laughs) The next episode of the series is the chronic what calls of Narnia. Um, (laughs) I have never seen any of these movies. Admittedly, I have not seen any of them. So I went into this episode having the least amount of interest, but coming away maybe the most interested of any of the episodes that we saw here because Roger Rabbit is one of my all-time favorite films. I love Pirates of the Caribbean. I love Honey, I Shrunk the Kids. But having never experienced a Narnia film after seeing these costumes and these amazing props that are so incredibly detailed, I wanted to basically stop what I was doing and start hammering through the Narnia series personally. I've seen them... I remember what a big deal it was when they announced Disney was doing this because you've had a ton of adaptations 
on the book. I remember I grew up on the animated one. Um, they did, uh, I, I forget even who put it out there, but like I remember watching it always around Christmas time. Yeah. It's kind of a natural thing. Yeah. You know, you go through the wardrobe, it's snow. Um, and that was what I grew up on. So when they announced that Disney was doing the adaptation, like I remember it, it was something like it wasn't just a kid's movie. It was something, you know, because it is a piece of literature, classic literature, it was taken very seriously. Um, and I think, you know, they did an amazing job handling the material. Yeah. Um, I love basically, <clears throat> excuse me, everything that they show us here. I love the detail in literally everything. The detail of the costumes, the detail in the hero weapons. I mean, even down to the the heads of the the uh, the Minotaurs and the Centaurs, right? And Aslan the lion, right? Um, like they're so lifelike, and the animatronics inside with the puppeteers, like they look so convincing it's amazing how much work goes into some of these props because now you're we've really traveled through a history of cinema here going all the way back to mary poppins in the 60s up to nightmare i mean and now we're here with narnia and to see the work that people put in, I mean, these are made by hand. People are building these things and stitching them by hand. Punching hairs individually. The The quality of the work is absolutely unbelievable. No, and that's one of the things that this series showcases beautifully is that they really are focusing on what an art form this is. And I, I feel like that's the side of it that a lot of people don't know. I loved Kieran Shaw. I thought he was amazing when they brought him out and they showed him that sled and he was like, can I get on? And and Dan says no. And he's like, why? <laughs> Which is something that was sort of a common theme um, with some of these very fragile props where an actor or, you know, uh, a choreographer, somebody that worked on the film wants to touch it and they're told, no, 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 you can't touch it or wait, you have to put the gloves on. Well, I have to imagine that's very hard. I mean, gloves I can understand because you don't want to, you know, get any fingerprint or if there's anything on your hands, you don't want to transpose it onto the object. But it's like, especially for somebody like Dee Dee Wood who worked with this stuff every single day, it's like, why can't I touch it? That That was mine at one point. Yeah. And it was something that I physically interacted with for hours a day. And that's the thing. It go and, and Dan Lanigan says it in this episode. It goes from being work to something that is now a museum artifact. Yeah. I mean, the same way you can't go up and touch the Mona Lisa, now you can't go touch the sled. And it doesn't matter what your history was with it. But Kieran Shaw looked like he was... So happy to be back in that world. And then seeing the child actors, seeing that three of them back together and they're interacting with their props and like they never got to hold the hero sword. It was something that they weren't allowed to, even though he uses it in the film, he otherwise was never allowed to touch it. And, and a couple of them had never touched some of these props ever. So it was the first time that they got to interact with it. But it seems like they had a bond and similar to Shaw, 
it seems like they just have a love for this film and a love for this world that they were a part of and they appreciate it so much. They certainly have an appreciation for what they did other than, you know, more than more than just I was a child actor and I got to be part of this really big film. I, I think they understand the weight of it and its place in history. Um, what struck me about this scene, too, is that, you know, we talked about how they showed Karen Dottris her yes. her coat. Uh, her Jane coat um, and it was very very detailed but these pieces see this is where it's different doing something even though Narnia is sort of a period piece the clothes that they put together they're things that you can find um, I believe these were all made up for the purpose of the film but it looks more recent. It's, you know, it's, it's not a pirate film. It's not things that you have to completely fabricate, but what they did was to, you know, stress the outfits a little bit. And that was all something, you know, it's not like they found a, a torn sweater and they just mended it for the purpose of, of the film. They made the sweater and then they roughed it up. Well, right. It's like in Pirates of the Caribbean when they, they made those beautiful outfits and then threw them in the cement truck with bricks to give them a tattered look. Exactly. Sometimes you just have to do what you have to do. Um, and I think the, the my favorite takeaway is that Rob Nicola, who is like a super fan of Narnia, um, he's featured in the episode. He had to give one of his costumes to Dan to bring to the cast reunion. And so that they had all four kids. So they had all of them. Um, and as a thank you, they were going to give him the costumes that he was missing um, so that he could finish his collection and they could all be together. If that's your favorite movie, I mean, why not? No, and he's taking such good care of everything. It's really an impressive collection. I mean, he has Mr. and Mrs. Beaver. He's got Mr. Tumnus's packages i mean he has got everything basically from the second they step foot through that wardrobe he, he's missing the wardrobe that's really it he's got almost everything else and he really does have it in pristine condition so as long as he's going to take care of it why not let him have it and you know hopefully it does make it back to the archives one day i'm sure that it will uh who framed roger rabbit one of my all-time favorite films is the next film that they cover here on Prop Culture. And this is sort of interesting in that you wonder how many props are left from this film because similar to Tron, and I, I didn't mention this when we talked about Tron, and maybe this is why uh, Steven Lisberger didn't have a ton of props in his yurt, um, which m was more of a party city than anything else, Um he had a cake plate. I'm just saying. I just <laughs> love saying it too. <laughs> Steven Lisberger's yurt. Um, if you think about it, they did not have a ton of props made because they had the scoops. There were only two of them. Mm -hmm. One is owned by somebody that Dan Lanigan knows. The other one was going to auction. We saw that in the episode. They They basically reused their costumes and had them fixed up with tape and they had their identity discs. But other than that, I mean, it was a digital world. There wasn't much else to interact with. So there really aren't a lot of props from that film. Yeah. I mean, maybe you had the bikes to sit on. Right. But even that, it's not an actual bike. You're just, yeah. 
you know, giving them something as a reference where where the handles are going to be and how high the seat is. And that's about it. Similar here with Who Framed Roger Rabbit. I mean, yes, you do have props. We did see the handcuffs, which were great, by the way. How ingenious that they are on a spring like that to, to give it attention, to make it look like one hand is cuffed to Roger, who's not actually there. And the other hand or the other uh, cuff is on the hand of Eddie Valiant. That's brilliant. I mean, it's interesting to learn about things where it's like, okay, you have Jack Sparrow's hat and then they had to make a rubber one that could withstand the water. That way he didn't lose it and you could find it when it because it'll float now and it's not an actual leather hat. Yeah. So like that's interesting, but you're changing up the material. Here, you're taking a pair of handcuffs, but you're changing the functionality because Instead of having, you know, if it was real handcuffs, it would droop. Right. And then you're up against, well, how are we going to put Roger in there? This, they, you know, they gave it a little, a little spring so it could hold itself up. Right. And it's easier to animate Roger's hand through there. It's, it's brilliant. Yeah. Really well done. But there are not a ton of props from this movie because, I mean, other than some hero weapons, a lot in this film was animated, you know, it was animation. And like, even, even the gun that Eddie uses when he goes to Toontown, that's, that's an animated gun. I mean, I'm sure he had, he must've had a rubber pistol in his hand just so that they had something to animate over. Um, but I mean, so much of it just didn't exist in reality. You know, even, even the scene when Roger is in the kitchen sink and he pops back up and he spits water, that's just a hose that's been, uh, you know, and a pipe that's been run through the sink and you have somebody underneath it that's operating it. Right. So I or think even... other than animation cells and some costumes, there probably isn't a lot left from this film. I feel like, yeah, like the bigger takeaways from this film are probably going to be the animation cells. But even when you think of like a bigger set piece, like the warehouse at the end, right? Those are set pieces. Right. It's all of the the boxes and the the oversized stuff just to fill the room. And those could be recycled and repurposed. Some of them ended up at the MGM studios. Exactly. Exactly. But you could use them in other films without being able to pick out, oh, that was in Roger Rabbit. Right. Because they probably just put an adhesive on that says Acme whatever. And they'll peel it off and just reuse a box or reuse a crate for a later production. The bar scene, same thing. All yeah. of that can be recycled and repurposed. Um, I want to talk about one prop in particular in a minute here. But I would be remiss if I didn't gloss over the cameos here and the, and the interviews that you have with both Kathleen Turner and Christopher Lloyd. Kathleen Turner is hilarious. She really episode. is. Yeah. She has an amazing sense of humor. And similar to how Danny Elfman really played a big hand in developing Jack Skellington as a character, she seemed to have a lot of input in the design of Jessica Rabbit because Jessica had a number of different uh ways that she was drawn there was a lot of concept art for her and and some of it actually ended up in the film sort of by accident because they had printed it on the newspaper that eddie valiant uh sets his his the patty cake glass. picture yeah, the patty cake picture and he sets the glass down and he notices the will i never know in all of the years i've been watching this because you're focused on eddie putting the glass down on the will i never look at jessica on that newspaper 
that's not the Jessica that ends up in the film. It's one of the concept designs that they later change. Right. And you can kind of get away with it, though, because if it's supposed to, I mean, it's supposed to look like a picture, but it's like, you know, when they do this sketch of like a wanted poster yeah. or something, you you could kind of pass it off as, oh, it was an artist rendering. Um, what strikes me the most is that Jessica Rabbit, they modeled off of Lauren Bacall, who was mm -hmm. very popular act actress of her time. Yeah, big film noir actress. Exactly. And um, some of the initial concept art, to me, looks like Elsa. Come to find out, the animators who worked on Jessica Rabbit later went on to do Frozen. So I'm wondering how much of it is just by chance and coincidence or if they really sort of turned this initial sketch into what we know as Elsa. Yeah. Um, I they, There's there's that common term that good ideas never die. They, they always resurface later. It's possible that some concept art had stuck with them and later resurfaced in, in a later project. Perhaps that was sort of how they came up with some of the design of Elsa because let's be real about something. Other than maybe some bone structure in a face in a concept drawing, there is nothing about Elsa, nothing, that looks like Jessica Rabbit. Not true. The leg. When she transforms her dress... Yeah, okay, I'll give you that. She's got that high slit. She's got the sexy slit. All right. So that's the thing where it's like, I can understand. Like, look at Burton's entire body of work. He doesn't have a style. I don't know if you've heard that. <laughs> And I've never heard you say it either. Mm. Um, it, some people might call that derivative, but that just might be what's in his head. And it's his style and it's how, how he puts it out there. It might have just stuck with the animators and, and maybe they always wanted to use this design and couldn't. And maybe that's where, you know, they drew influence from it. But I kind of feel like it goes from coincidence to maybe being an influence when you see that leg, especially because that was something that Kathleen Turner contributed because that's kind of what she was known for. Right. That and her husky voice. So right. they gave Jessica the legs and then it was her idea to give her the boobs. Um, but that's funny because, because Jessica we can really make it funny. Yeah. And you know, the, the design of Jessica rabbit is so iconic. Like that's a huge contribution. Right. Pun most definitely intended. <laughs> And then Christopher Lloyd. It's always great to see Christopher Lloyd, but he's got great sense of humor, but you can tell that when he sees that Judge Doom costume, he puts the hat on, he grabs the cane, he gets the crazy eyes going with the big smile. Like You could tell that that character clearly has stayed with him for his entire life and that he means so much to him. Uh, so much to him. Um, and that he really appreciates the fact that the character has become timeless and that the fans have embraced him the way that they have. He totally becomes the character all over again. I also don't want to gloss over the fact that they got him to do a shave and a haircut. Yes. That's as brilliant as taking Karen Dottris to the carousel. Like, it's, it's another 
really great touch that this show has not to just show and tell the props, but to put them in a place that means something. And how cool for Dan Lanigan. We're going to ask him about that, too. Yeah. Like, what the, what is that like to be watching Christopher Lloyd get a shade, shave and haircut? Then you get Charles Fleischer, who literally is a cartoon character. He is Roger. Yeah, he is. Um, And they have him show that he still has the ears that he would wear on set and the bow tie. He doesn't have the red suspenders anymore. Or so he says. I don't know what he says that's true and what he <laughs> said that's fabricated. Um, but great to see him. Um, but the best part of this episode is Benny the Cab. It's shocking. It's just bare bone. It's like a little go-kart. It was basically a 1986 Honda little go-kart. That the stunt driver who also, and his name escapes me, uh, forgive me, but he was also um, a stunt double, I think they said for 12 years or for 12 years. For Michael J. Fox. Michael J. Fox, right? Um, Which makes all the sense in the world. I mean, like size and stature. Yeah. He definitely, I mean, you could see where it was an obvious casting choice. But he drove this thing and he was in a, a blackout suit sitting behind Bob Hoskins. Hoskins was sitting on the gas tank actually, and they just put a seat on it, and he was just holding like uh, a steering wheel, and Bob Hoskins had to trust that this guy wasn't going to flip him over, but it took a lot of practice for them, because every time the stunt driver turned the wheel, Hoskins had to turn the wheel, and it had to look fluid. It had to look natural. But Benny the Cab still works, can, and it still runs. Can you imagine Zemeckis giving this direction like, okay, you're going to pretend to drive, but you're not actually going to do it, and then you're going to talk to a, an animated rabbit. And he's they didn't really even there. they didn't even give him a sight line for yeah. Roger when he's driving. Right. I mean, like, what a task. But yes, to your point too, Benny still functions, and he's got some zip to him. It it's amazing that he runs as well as he does. That was my favorite part. I did love seeing the big rubber stand in for Roger, um, and that's Dan's prop. That that is cool. That I mean, is cool. That and the handcuffs. Like he's got some really great pieces from Roger Rabbit. Yeah, but um, seeing Benny the Cab was definitely my favorite part of this episode. My favorite. I mean, it was really cool to see Benny, and I can't imagine that if I had that, I wouldn't be doing anything with my time other than driving it around that ranch. Um, I really liked um, when they met with the, uh, the practical effects one take George. Yes. And they, they uh, explained the, the rigging to pull Roger out of the blinds. Oh, when that he, was when cool. Through Marvin Acme's office. Yeah. Yeah. When they, uh, when they, after they show him the patty cake photos. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I, it's, it, it ama- like I, I watch that now and I watched this episode and I still can't figure out exactly how they pulled it off. Even though it is broken down, it just, it, it looks so amazing. Yeah. Movie magic. Exactly. Which, if it were done today, would be done with what? CGI. CGI. Um, CGI really needs to go away. I don't know if you've heard us say that on the show <laughs> or not, but it really needs to just stop. The final episode of season one of Prop Culture and I'm com- well. We're gonna ask Dan, but I'm confident <laughs> right now as I sit here saying season one because I think there's enough there where the fans have embraced it, and clearly Disney's got enough of a library where you're gonna be able to track down more 
props. And you may see them eventually start incorporating some of the Fox acquisition in there as well, which would be fine. But what a great way to wrap season one with the Muppet movie. Who are iconic in and of themselves. I mean, we, and I'm glad that they included it in the show, when they first put the Muppets at the Museum of the Moving Image, I immediately, I was like, we have to go see it. And it yeah. wasn't supposed to be a mainstay. It was just supposed to be like a limited, uh, a limited exhibit. And I was like, no, we have to go. And I remember it was on the top floor and you go up the escalator and the first thing that you see is Kermit. And I, I cried. So Sitting on the log. Yeah. They would have been remiss not to include the Muppets, but what they were able to get was really impressive. And and how far and wide these props are scattered yeah, I mean, is unbelievable. You've got Fozzie Studebaker is in South Bend. In a basement. Yeah. Which is a, a crime, by the way. Yeah, they say, oh, it's the centerpiece of our collection. Why is it in the basement? Yeah, put it in the lobby. Um, you've got props in L.A. I mean... Props just all over the United States. Um, I But you can, you can talk about the puppets or the Muppets as they were. Um, but I feel like so many... Because they've become such an important part of history, they've been dissected for 50, 60 years. Mm-hmm. Um, the only takeaway I have from them as as a character is Gonzo. First, I love that he got a sit-down interview with Gonzo, and the sense of humor is so Muppety, it's fantastic. Yeah. But it amazes me how much Gonzo has changed over the course of the years, because you look at him in this sit-down interview versus uh, his scenes from the from uh, the Muppet movie. He's a brighter color blue. The nose is more rounded than it was originally, because um, the nose looks almost broken it's kind of wonky in the original Muppet film and the head kind of attaches to the neck, but it's all sort of one piece. Now it looks like he's got a head on a neck. So he specifically has changed a lot aesthetically. He was, and I, I I believe the voice is the same. I think he used to look a lot more like Grover. Yeah. As far as how, the head was connected to the body. Right. Um, but yeah, that was, that was kind of a big takeaway for me too, because like I said, we've, we've seen the exhibit. So we know that these, the Muppets are icons and you are able to go and see them there. And I guess I thought there was a lot more. Um, so it's kind of weird to think how far and wide the props are scattered because when they sit down with Brian Henson, he says that there's still a working studio and they reused a lot of them because, again, you can't just go and buy Muppet clothes. You have to make all of them. So instead of making them new every single time, they just change them out. So I never realized how little there actually is. Right. And the clothing, the costumes that they put on the Muppets... They are as good as anything that has been made for a real person. Especially Piggy's wardrobe. And what's amazing about that is you had costume designers that were talking about the process of making these costumes, you know, when the movie came out. And they said, yeah, you can tell we were kind of just using whatever. 
Like this is tablecloth. They're like this is a tablecloth. We made it look like you know a Victorian era dress, but it's a tablecloth. Um, but they're really outstanding costumes, and I love the behind the scenes photos. Mm. Mel Brooks with Frank Oz and Jim Henson. I mean, you get a lump in your throat just seeing those on their own. A lot. I mean, almost every cast and crew member that they got for this series would say hello, old friend. And I I love how immediately nostalgic everybody got. But this crew in particular, everyone clearly had such a fondness for working with the Muppets and it, it didn't escape them what they were doing. They, they knew how important it was. Yeah. It was nice to see the El Slezo cafe sign come out of a storage unit um, and see it assembled again. That's a really cool piece of art. Yeah, it is the way that they, you know, really aged it. Um, but it, it, it's just such a cool looking thing. It, it almost looks like something you'd find in Vegas. Yeah. It's like maybe at the um, what's that the 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 graveyard the neon sign graveyard yeah yeah it looks like something that was meant for there but was really made for the exclusive purpose of of this film but um, seeing some of the uh, practical effects that they used and how they made um, how they made Kermit on uh, ride that bicycle because a remote control wasn't working and it's just a puppeteer on a crane but it looks so impressive and it looks so natural um i mean this this really is classic hollywood filmmaking technique and it's why every time the muppets come back around i get very excited to see what it is that they're going to do next because they're they're a beloved family because that's really what they are the muppets Mm. are a family and they are a beloved family and they are a beloved timeless franchise. And I, I say it over and over, like, I wish we saw more of them. It seems like every time something's about to happen with them, yep. they back off of it again. Well, because Siegel, and I mean, we have raved about Siegel's Muppets on it's this show. It's his masterpiece. It is. It's amazing. It's perfect. He he did the franchise of justice. He hit you right in the feels with it. It's It's perfect. Um, and then from there, they did the show on ABC for a little while. They brought the show back, but they made it very contemporary where it was it was a night show. And I loved it. It was hysterical. I thought it was the perfect way to bring the Muppets in, into now. And, you know, supposedly they've been going back and forth Disney Plus for a little while. Is it going to be shorts? Is it going to be the full show? That is my plea to our listeners. Please watch it and please don't let it die. I, I want the Muppets back as a mainstay. Yeah, and I would love to see that Muppet show that ABC had, which by the last episode of that season had really hit its stride, and you mm-hmm. could see where they were going with it, and then they canceled it because television... Doesn't have a chance anymore. Does, television, they cancel a show after three episodes. Yep. They'll cancel a show after six episodes. There have been shows that have won... New best comedy, new best drama at the People's Choice Awards that then get canceled. See, I don't understand. I mean, it's it's the People's Choice Awards. You have you had Fuller House. You have the Saved by the Bell reboot come out. You have nine hundred two one zero. How is it that every time it's the Muppets getting rebooted that has probably a bigger fan base than all of those things combined? We can't hold on to it. It's ridiculous. 
before we move on and wrap up the show as a whole and get to our interview, uh, we'd be remiss not to mention the banjo. Yes. That, I mean, that is the holy grail of the Muppets. And uh, they got the sit down with Paul Williams. What a, what a career yeah. he's had. What a story. And it seems like out of all the people that he's worked with, Kermit was his favorite. Well, Kermit was the one that gave him the least amount of problems, I would imagine. <laughs> but it was great to see him with that banjo. He, he did not want to leave. That No, that was so cute. He did not want to leave when that interview was done. And it seemed like the interview was wrapped up, and then he and Dan Lanigan continued their conversation after. I'd love to know, and maybe it's not for us to know. Maybe that's a private conversation, but I would have loved to have been a fly on the wall just to listen to the remainder of that conversation after the uh, after the mics went off. I mean, I have to imagine, because I did work on a show like this too. And that, that was kind of the fascinating thing for me with this was how they were able to track everything down. Um, I worked on a show called Sports Detectives and they went and they tracked down some really iconic pieces of memorabilia that have since been forgotten. Like, like they were looking for Secretariat's saddle cloth and um, they were looking for... Uh, Didn't they go after Jim Craig's American flag? Yes. From the 1980 U.S. Olympic gold medal game? In from Lake Placid. Placid. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So there really was a lot of work involved trying to track these objects down. And when our crews would go and get a lead on something, they would spend like an hour and a half to two hours with the person. And that was the best thing about getting to work on something like that was because I got to watch all of the raw interviews and see how they played out. So to apply that here... I have to imagine Dan Lanigan got at least an hour with Paul Williams, and I can only imagine what didn't even make it to air and and the stories that were Treasure cut out. Treasure trove, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, synopsis of season one of Prop Culture. I'll let you bat lead off on this one. Um, I love it. I mean, I loved it in concept, and I think they did a phenomenal job producing this. I think that, you know, we started talking a little bit about it before. I think the scope of the movies that they chose were perfect. They got from different eras. I mean, we got from Walt's time to now. Um, we got all different kinds of props, whether they were fabricated or they were an object that had to be modified to work for the screen. Um I love, from a fan perspective, the nostalgia. And from an industry perspective, I love learning about the craftsmanship, about these props. And I think the way that they put the show together, it's digestible on both ends. It caters towards the fans, but whether you're really into the films that they're talking about or not, you will learn something and you will take something away. And I love that they're also incorporating the cast and the crew of these films and and we're hearing these firsthand accounts of the stories um I agree with you I think this is season one I can't imagine that with the success of this show because everybody's talking about it that they're not going to do another one and I mean you can tell just from Dan's personal collection you know it's it's in the opening 
credits, you can see what he has. He's got a Rocketeer. I would absolutely love if they did that for season two. Yes. And I think Disney still has enough where they could do it. Um, I also caught in the archives warehouse the Tin Man from Return to Oz. I will hit the ceiling if they do a Return to Oz episode. Find me the Yellow Brick Road. I will absolutely. I, I I will go nuts. I can't even. I can't even imagine. Um. So I hope they have enough to do it. But I think as far as Disney live action films, they could. They certainly have enough to do a couple more seasons. And um, I hope that they do more like this. Um. I would love to see them do a show on makeup design. Um. I think there's a lot there. And what I would really love. And I hope that this is something that Disney is taking to taking into account is that, you know, when we research our films, a lot of the times we're going to the extra features on the DVDs and we have a ton of DVDs. But for people who are either getting rid of them now because they have everything on the streaming service or people who are no longer going to buy them. They need to compensate for that in some way. And I'm hoping that Disney will do more making of series or like they're going to do it with Frozen. But I feel like that's more um, it's going to be more of a self shot thing Yeah. Uh, for Frozen 2 because they just needed something to fill, you know, the lack of production that's happening right now or not happening, I should say. Um, but I hope that, that that's something they're taking into consideration is that, you know, we would love to see the making of. And, I, you know, they are doing it with Mandalorian. But um it's the movies I want to see. Yeah, I agree. Um, I love this show. I want more of this show. Um, I think we're going to get more of this show. Um, I think that with Disney's history in cinema, there's just so much that, that you can do. There's so much that you can try and find. Um, I would love if they went and found some props that they thought were lost forever. Um, I know that that's much easier said than done. Um, but you know things are going to be out there. Uh, some of these things exist, and I can't wait to see what they unearth moving forward. Well, I think that now that this is out there too, I have to imagine that people who do have props are going to start coming forward. I certainly hope so. And we want to know what you guys have to say about prop culture. What was your review of the series? You can let us know on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Monoreal Radio. Email us, monorealradio at gmail.com. We are excited to welcome host, producer of Prop Culture, Dan Lanigan, onto Monoreal Radio today. Dan, how are you doing? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me on, guys. Oh, the pleasure is is totally ours. So we want to launch right into it because we just spent about the last hour and 45 minutes or so discussing Prop Culture, a show that we've really, really grown to love um, and a show that we were so excited that uh, Disney had picked up. So we're going to start with the first question here. We read in your Forbes interview that the first collector piece that you had was a tune pistol from Roger Rabbit, which turned out to not be screen used. Um, what was your first official piece, Disney or otherwise? Oh, that's a good question. I don't think I remember. Um, so that Roger Rabbit gun um, sticks in my craw, in my brain, because of of the problem uh, associated with it. 
Um, I know I picked up a few small pieces before that, and then afterwards, honestly, I don't know. I mean, I can make something up. But, <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's It was so long ago. Let's see. What would be the, the next major piece? Let me think here. The next major piece that I picked up it will probably have been a few years later. Uh, it was probably a vampire from The Nightmare Before Christmas. I believe that was one of the first puppets I picked up from The Nightmare Before Christmas, and I was collecting that stuff early on. So I'd say that's a pretty good guess, is uh, one of the two vampire puppets that I have in my collection from The Nightmare Before Christmas. Oh, that's awesome. What is your process typically like when tracking down these props? Is it more like internet research base, or is finding yourself in Steven Lisberger's yurt like more common for you? Uh, It's evolved over the years. It certainly started uh, heavily with internet research uh, and cold calls. Uh, It is over the years developed more into a meeting with people and seeing things, you know, not necessarily to work out a deal, but it, it sometimes leads there. I mean, I can't go in wanting to push them to sell something if they don't want to sell it. So it's, it's always just about learning about the material and then if it comes to, you know, they know I'm a collector, something works out, great. But, um, yeah, it's picking things up from auction, picking stuff from other collectors, dealers, uh, finding things direct from people that are selling on the Internet. It used to be eBay. I don't deal with eBay anymore because it's a minefield uh, when it comes to movie props. But uh, back in the early days, it was a good place. Uh, and then just... You know, word of mouth, meeting people, and uh, and talking to people who worked on films. It's it's everything. It's everything. This might be one of the more bizarre questions that you've had to answer, but it's something that I've always sort of been curious about because you have a great collection, and I've went on your Instagram and saw some of the uh, artifacts that you have because you mentioned on the show, you know, after a while these things do become artifacts. You know, you have yep. uh, you have some puppets and animatronics from Gremlins to the new batch. You have mm-hmm. a certain tool from a favorite film of mine about a group of young entrepreneurs from 1984 who enter a small business. Now, my question is, how do you clean and maintain these things? I would imagine that when you have... A proton pack when you have your Captain America hero suit with the shield. This is not something typically that I would assume you could just go around with the Swiffer Duster. Is it something that gets professionally done like they do in a in a museum? How do you keep these things intact? Well, you know, some materials are more sensitive than others. Some props, some costumes, some pieces are are built out of materials that don't last. So you have to be aware of that when you are collecting and how to take care of it. You know, ultraviolet light is always bad. Uh, You know, temperature, I find temperature stability, keeping stuff at a constant temperature helps keep things from being in flux. But when it comes to cleaning, you know, just keeping as much of a dust-free environment, you know, having good filters, uh, a closed-off environment, uh, uh, good filters in your your air system, and then when you do clean it, you know a little bit of uh, 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 blown air, uh, filtered blown air is good to get dust off of things. And otherwise, I don't really clean stuff. I mean, I you know a lot. The thing about it is a lot of these pieces come with you know Fuller's Earth on it or things from set, so you don't necessarily want to clean it anyways. So you want to be careful 
how you display pieces. Some pieces should be behind glass. Um, some people collect that collect puts everything behind glass. I don't personally like to do that, but I do put pieces that I feel like for preservation purposes need to be protected that way. And certainly, you know, keeping light off of it when you're not looking at or displaying it and certainly getting rid of all UV light and temperature stability is important to me. What do you think is the most fascinating part about fabricating props? Do you prefer ones that are made from scratch, something like the shrink machine, or do you prefer ones that are built on an object we're already familiar with, like a Tron helmet? Or is it the armatures, the costuming? Like, what's your what's your preference? Well, it's interesting. Um, I would say that for me it comes down to the source material and the iconography of that source material of what how i react to it so something that might have been completely bespoke made that was from the ground up made compared to something that was bought from a store if that piece that was bought from the store let's say costume elements from the big lebowski you know uh compared to something that from a lesser film that was really a cool device, I will still go with something, you know, like that costume from the Big Lebowski, even though it was sourced from, you know, uh, a department store because about the iconography and what it means to me. In a vacuum, just looking at the art of it, anything that is made from the ground up by specific artists, no matter what their skill set is, whether they're mechanical, electronic, sculpting, painting, all that kind of stuff. Um, that's my preference for, in a vacuum. But but for me, collecting a lot more about what I connect with with the film and why I collect these pieces, not necessarily just the objects themselves. Although that, I mean, that is a part of it, but that my entryway into these props is through the movies and the TV shows and what I think about the stories and the characters, and that's how I envision this stuff. Getting, I connect to the stuff. Getting into uh, specifics on the episodes, talking about the Mary Poppins episode, really, for lack of a better term, the pilot episode of prop culture. How did you yep. get the carpet bag back to the Disney archives? Well, you know, there's a reason we didn't get into too many details on the show, because I I'm not exactly comfortable with getting into the details too much, but I will just say that the story behind it is like it, it shows in the episode. The, 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 the carpet bag was given away as a promotion through the studio, through Disney and Kraft Foods. It was filled with money, was given to, uh, to the winner of the sweepstakes by an advertising exec. The people that, one, didn't really care about the bag, so the person who delivered the money kept the bag, and it was in their, I believe, their attic or maybe even their basement for... 30 years. And eventually it was, you know, they had used it on and off for different things. It was used. It wasn't actually kept as a artifact, I believe. But eventually uh, they reached out to a friend of mine who worked on the show, Jason DeBoard. Uh, he was one of our producers. He has a site called the Prop Log. Um, and he had a big presence on the internet. So they reached out to him and he kind of connected them with an auction house. And that auction house sold it. And then in the process, I had heard about it, and I knew that Disney was looking to acquire it. So I worked with another friend of mine to acquire it from the auction so that it could go back to Disney. That's awesome. And go into the archive. So 
also in the Mary Poppins episode, you met with Dee Dee Wood, the choreographer, and she did, let's be honest, I think what any fan would have by plucking the bristle out of the brush. Um, did you have any yep. other close calls transporting or handling these props? Yes, we did. I, I wouldn't say it was a close call. It was, it, it was a, oh my gosh, I can't believe that just happened moment. When we were in uh, Walt's office uh, with Richard Sherman, um, before we shot that, we were told that nobody can handle the snow globe. And so, you know, only the archive people handle the snow globe, which is, you know, it's a very important piece for the archive. So they put it on the, uh, the piano and then we're sitting there recording and Richard goes and picks it up <laughs> and tilts it over. And I, I, it's, you can see the reaction. We don't lean into it in the edit. You can see the reaction. I'm, I, I'm my jaw drops. And I'm thinking, oh, crap. <laughs> uh, and he puts it back down and, and there's no problem. And I know, you know, the archive people were in the room next door and I heard that they reacted a little bit uh, of shock as well. When it happened. But it's Richard Sherman. You, can, you know, it is what it is. And nothing happened. So I wouldn't say it was a close call. But we, it, when it happened, we were both we were all like, oh, <laughs> we have done the tour in Burbank and no we we feel you that that's they're no joke in there no no very serious yeah yeah they have the plastic on the floor and I think I even saw in um in your footage that the plastic was still on the floor can't stand on the carpet oh the yeah surface. yeah yeah they're they, exactly but you know they have to though I, I totally understand why um, fast forwarding a little bit in the series here, let's talk about Nightmare Before Christmas because it's a film, I mean, all of these films that you talk about transcend generations, but this is a movie that you collect from, you know, I know that you've got some really treasured artifacts from that film. When you're talking yep. to Danny Elfman about having to repair Jack Skellington because the uh, the hat on the Santa Jack would melt. Uh, did you know when you acquired yours that you would need to do maintenance to your Jack? Or is it something that you unfortunately had to learn the hard way? Uh, I learned the hard way. I did, oh, not, no. I did not know about that. Uh, when, when I got my Jack Skellington, the tie was, in retrospect, looking like it was about to go. Because what happens is... With this material, it bubbles up a little bit uh, before it starts to kind of just liquefy. But I didn't know that. Uh, it was pretty early in my collecting. And so what happened was the tie on mine started dripping down the center of his shirt. And when that happened, I was like, okay, what do I do about this? So I, I put a plastic material underneath the tie so that when it kept dripping, it would stay on this barrier material. But at the same time, I was, you know, I knew I needed to get the tie removed, but I had no idea what to do to do that because these things are built very specifically. So uh, I had reached out to someone who I met previously, Bonita DiCarlo, who was uh, the head puppet fabricator for Nightmare Before Christmas and James and Giant Peach, who has since become a good friend of mine. And basically, I sent the puppet to her and she took the the tie off and the hands, the hands were the same issue. The hands were the same material. And she took me through the process of why she think this, this was happening. And it turned out that when they were doing nightmare before Christmas, when they were making it, they were experimenting with new materials, uh, so that they could get a combination of the right look with the right posability and the right texture 
uh, or, or moldability in, in the pieces that required to be made out of this material. So both the tie and the hands had armatures underneath them, uh, metal armatures underneath them. But this material on the, on the outside was made of this polyurethane. And when they first started making the movie, they used the mix that uh, would come out from the manufacturer of this chemical, this polyurethane. And it looked great, and it was stable, but it would not pose correct. It would not animate right. So they started mixing in these, um, I'm not sure if they, they call them in silicone, they call them plasticizers, but there's this, this other agent that made it softer and more flexible. And it worked great. And they did that. And then they continued doing that on James and Giant Peach. But long term, those pieces would convert back to a liquid state. Wow. The one, the, the pieces from the early part of, of uh, Night Before Christmas that were made of this original material still were stable. So what I was able to do was I was able to come across a, a tie that Benita still had in a box somewhere that was from the earlier mix so it was a screen-used tie, and it got replaced with the one that I had. Secondarily, through another source, I came across a close-up set of hands for Jack, which were also of this material. No, the, the close-up set of hands were of a harder material that was meant to have a, um, a tighter defined look so that when you do the close-up of Jack opening the door into Christmastown. Okay. And I put those on. So, so now, although my... Jack is not original from set. It is still original pieces that were, were animated on, and the, the, it's stable. So I'm not concerned about it. But it took me years to track these pieces down and get it all worked together. It was it was a mess because, I mean, Jack Skellington is is arguably the, the, the most important character in the film, and my Jack started deteriorating, and I was just freaking out. <laughs> <laughs> that is so interesting, and that's great that you were able to rebuild him back into one piece, even if it was several iterations of Jack. Um, Jumping to the uh, Honey, I Shrunk the Kids episode. How did you land Rick Moranis? Listeners, you cannot see, but we are bowing down to Dan right now. (laughs) Uh, Well, uh, Rick, you know, it's just, I think, luck uh, getting Rick Moranis. Um, You know, we were at the right place at the right time with the right project. And, you know, we, we, I wouldn't say badgered him, but we didn't give up on him. We kept asking and eventually he's like, all right, I'll do it. (laughs) And, uh, and that was, that was, I mean, the thing about it is, is we weren't, you know, this wasn't meant to be an interview this, and it wasn't an interview about him getting into his life and why he, he retired from acting. This was specifically about a project that he's well known about and that we're celebrating. And I think that was part of the reason he, you know, agreed to do it. And, uh, you know, it was fun. I mean, you know, there's a whole 10-minute sequence that we didn't put in the cut of that episode where I'm just bowing down to him over a strange brew, and he's telling me about his experiences directing it with Dave Thomas, and and uh, he kept his pajamas from that film. It's one of the few things he's kept from his movies, and I think it was because he was going to wear them. But, you know, he, he went, it just, it just, it was really a lot of fun, uh, you know, talking about that. And then we dived into Honey, I Shrunk the Kids, which, you know, arguably was just as fun for the show. You're obviously a huge fan of Roger Rabbit. We talked about the Toon Blaster at the beginning of, uh, of our conversation with you. Now, cut to you getting a shave and a haircut with Christopher Lloyd. What was it like having 
a hobby that you are so clearly passionate about lead you to that moment? Uh, surreal. It was very surreal. And uh, it was weird because, you know, we're, we're doing this from a perspective of a TV show. But at the same time, I'm sitting there getting my hair cut and uh, Christopher is getting a shave. And, you know, it was cool. I mean, I, I, it's, it's hard to describe. Very surreal moment. Uh, you know, having a shave and haircut with uh, Judge Doom from Who Framed Roger Rabbit. Super nice guy. And, like, you know, once we showed him the costume, he like, he com- really opened up. He really connected with that costume. And he really wanted to put it on. Oh, he wow. was uh, very, 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 he it was, he, you know, you see these moments in the cut where he looks at the camera and, you know, has that Judge Doom look. I mean, you could tell he wanted to be, he connected with that that performance, and he wanted to get back into that costume and show us a little bit of doom. That is like the ultimate fan moment. Uh, shifting into some questions about the series overall, we've read that you pitched this to Disney. So once you got it to them, how much input did you have uh, in choosing the films for each episode? Was this just based on your collection, or did Disney give you like a must-have list to include? No, Disney did not give us a must-have list. They weren't aware of what films were going to be on the service at that time. And part of the pitch that uh, my partner, Jason Henry and I had to Disney was that this show, one of the benefits of the show is it's going to get people to watch the movies again. And ideally you want to have these movies on the service. So we went through and put together a list of 12 films that we felt like were important Disney movies that had good stories, that had good props, had interesting people that you could talk to, and and just as important, that I had a connection with. And then we showed that to Disney, and then with our, like, these are the films we really want to do at the top, and they pretty much went along with what we wanted to do. It was very early days of Disney+, and, you know, by doing it that way, I think we were able to get really great stories, and, and certainly my engagement to these movies was very natural, which was important to me because, you know, I'm not a professional host i'm just a collector so i'm not an actor i had to live it because i was you know i felt that way and and it worked out well it was amazing seeing some of the actors and actresses face to face with some of their props and some of their costumes again whose idea was it to reunite the props the outfits with the actors and actresses who use them uh i think that was if i'm not mistaken i believe that was me and jason's idea from the very beginning to have those pieces with, you know, present them to the people that worked on them so that we can actually have a visual for them to interact with and hopefully have some, you know, nostalgia and some emotional connection, although that's never guaranteed. Uh, But that was always a plan from the beginning of the show. There were many times that we noticed that the actors, when they were reunited with an outfit, I know Christopher Lloyd did it and he, he decided to, give you no comment but they sniff the costumes right and did any of them give a specific <laughs> reason why because it happens like three or four times you know i think smell is a part of memory and when you it's something that you experience with directly in your own history your own personal history you know it's part of your experience of living is, is smelling things so I never even thought about it, but I, pro- I think I've probably done that myself. You are given a piece that you've interacted with and you want to feel it. You want to smell it. You want to engage your senses. 
you know, I think it's just a natural, weird, but natural process that happens. So you traveled all over the map for this show from our neck of the woods on Long Island to St. Vincent's. Did you think going in that you'd have to cover that much ground? Like, what was your production schedule like? We actually thought we would travel more um, initially. Well, the production schedule wasn't that tough. Well, I shouldn't say that. It, It was tough, but it was spread out. We, we actually spread the, the, the shooting over six months okay. uh, because we were producing it as we were going. And as people, you know, there were some people that dropped in or dropped out. They couldn't do it because of their schedule. And constantly we were, we were trying to make it work because here's the thing. Our show had never come out. So people weren't aware of what we were trying to do. And our show is a little different than your traditional docuseries. So it made it more difficult to produce, but because we knew that was going to happen and we had to stretch out over more time, it made it more successful in the end. You know, our, our episodes were not shot in order. Uh, each episode was stretched out over multiple episodes. So there were times when we would go to one location, we might shoot two segments for two different episodes. Mm-hmm. But then there's times that we go back to the same place. Like we went back, even though we shot in New York, we went back for Rick Moranis. It was just the nature of producing it and having to to do that with really people's schedules not being available and us willing to wait for people to get them on the show. What about your post schedule? I have to imagine that cutting some of this stuff down for a half hour segment, 36 minutes on Disney Plus was was pretty challenging because I'm sure that there's a lot that you wanted to leave in. Yeah, uh, the show initially was going to be an hour show. And that's uh, how we went into the shoot and the edit. And we actually started editing pretty early on. We were editing episodes as soon as we were getting footage because we knew based on our post schedule and what we were doing, we were finding the show as we went. So we had four episodes that we had one hour cuts for with the intention of those being based on what's going to happen. And then Disney decided that they thought that this show was going to need to be shorter. The reason they, I think the reason they wanted that was they wanted it to be more broad and they wanted it to be a broader audience. And I think that was the right decision, but we did lose a lot of really great stuff because, you know, our interviews went from anywhere from two to four hours each time we talked to somebody. Wow. And it was, it wasn't really an interview. It was more of just a conversation with touch points, very much a back and forth. Uh, and then the editors, you know, worked around that. But I think that's part of why it feels natural, at least, again, for me as a as an executive producer, having produced other shows and then knowing my own capabilities, I felt like it's easier. It would be easier to get good footage if this is a conversation. And I think we get a, a very relaxed point of view from both the people I'm talking to and myself because it is just a conversation. That definitely comes across. I just have to imagine those must have been some deep cuts and you probably had some gems that weren't able to to make it to the show for time. Oh, a, a lot, a lot. But, you know, it's just, it is what it is. Hopefully we'll get an opportunity to put some of those moments back out at some point. But um, that's my hope. I think there's stuff that, that we could still see the light of day uh, in success. Yeah, and I think that we all hope that at this point, too. I have to ask, what was your biggest learning experience in this series? Was there something that you learned about a prop that maybe you hadn't come across in your research or a behind-the-scenes story that you had never heard other than getting it firsthand? You know, um, from a prop information standpoint, the discovery that we made 
in the Pirates episode when we're at the restaurant and we find the mast that Jack Sparrow is on when he enters the film. Mm-hmm. We were there to talk to Penny Rose, had no idea about that, huh. and literally discovered it as part of the shoot. Because, you know, with the TV show, you try and do as much research beforehand so that you have an idea what you're getting into from a docuseries perspective. And we had discovered other pieces through the show, but not necessarily on camera. This was like a on-camera, oh, my God, this is that. And then we, we kept looking at it. And, you know, it had been weathered down because of the sun and had this pirate on it, which initially you're thinking, oh, it's just a set. It's just a decoration for the restaurant. But, no, it was it was the one that he stepped off of. And it's such a great moment. It's one of the best character introductions in all film, you know, very similar in a lot of ways to Mary Poppins of her coming down from the sky. Well, he's coming in off, you know, a sinking ship onto the deck like it's no big deal. And to find that, uh, you know, just there was pretty awesome. That's amazing. We're obsessed with this show. And when it dropped, the Internet immediately demanded a season two. Can you tell us if that is something that's in the works and uh, what films you'd maybe want to put into it? We want to do a season two. We haven't heard anything yet. Disney's, you know, they haven't been running Disney Plus for a year yet. They're still uh, figuring things out. And then with everything going on in the world today, you know, they're they're a little busy right now. So we haven't heard anything about a season two. We think my gut is that we'll probably get a season two based on the tea leave reading that we've been doing of social media, but who knows? I would love to do dragon slayer as one of my favorite films. I would love to do that film. I would love to do uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark. Uh, I would love to do princess bride. Cause that's a Fox film. Nice. That would be great. You know, hocus pocus, I think would be a lot of fun. 20,000 leagues would be great. Although little nervous about that film because I'm not sure how many people are actually still surviving from the making of that movie. And we'd love to talk to people who worked on the film as part of the format. But I think that is an important one to try and do. You know, maybe Flight of the Navigator or Rocketeer. Those are definitely on our list of, of films to do. Yeah, that that's kind of... Uh, what we're thinking at least right now. Yeah, I was going to hope that you would have said Rocketeer because I know that in footage that we've seen of your collection, I think you do have a Rocketeer outfit, and that's one of my favorites. I do. Oh, man. I would love... I mean, I think... I'm speaking on your behalf now, Jackie. No, I love Rocketeer. I would love <laughs> to see some more of that it, you know, kind of come to light because it's a movie that I think... I think it's so good, and it, but it's it has sort of like a cult following, so I think it would be great to see a movie like that put in the spotlight again, which is kind of what makes Disney Plus exciting within itself, is the ability to discover things that maybe you hadn't seen before. And that's what we love yes. so much about your series, is that you picked from every different era, and there's something that every type of Disney fan could latch onto. Yeah, I mean, that was that was the intention when we're looking at it. We're trying to figure out, we want to cover as wide a berth as we can from Disney's history for our uh, titles that we're representing in, in their catalog and have something unique that we're doing for each episode. And, um, and that's what we're hoping to do if we get a season two. Dan Lanigan, thank you so much for joining us on Monoreal Radio today. Do you have any um, social media that you'd love to throw out there if people are looking to find you and follow what you're up to? Yeah, I've got, um, I'm on Twitter uh, and Instagram. I, I don't believe my Twitter account has been 
checkmarked yet, uh, but my Instagram has. Uh, Lanigan Dan. I think it's Dan Lanigan on one of them and Lanigan Dan on the other. And I'm on Facebook as well. Thank you so much again to Dan Lanigan for joining us this week on Monorail Radio. And thank you, the listener, for joining us this and every week on Monorail Radio. Don't forget to make sure that you hit the subscribe button on your podcast platform of choice. You can also follow us on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and TikTok at Monorail Radio. You can email us, monorailradio at gmail.com. You can also find us at monorailradio.com. And please, if you have a chance, don't forget to leave us a rating and a review on iTunes. Every little bit helps because, you know, this is how we're able to get an interview like Dan Lanigan with those reviews. It, it does help get us out there, and we'd love to give you more content just like this. We'll see you guys again later this week. For Jackie, I'm Sean. Have a magical week, everyone. On behalf of Monoreal Radio, we'd like to thank you for joining us. We'll see you at the movies, the stuff dreams are made of.